Legends podcast. I'm Connor Sherman, sitting here today with my co-host Nick Dingle, and uh, today joining us is Dr. Andrew Fight. Andrew is a historian and professor of American history and social sciences department here at Shawnee State University. Uh, Andrew has at least 10 projects going on at all times, uh, so we better get into it here. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's just start with the Recovering Appalachia Symposium. So this was a three-day symposium on Appalachian studies in the digital age, correct? Correct, yeah. Um, this is a biennial symposium that Shawnee State started hosting. Um, it's meant to uh, sort of shine a light on the new certificate program in digital Appalachian studies we have here at Shawnee. It's a 15-credit hour uh, certificate program. You can add it to any major. It's a standalone certificate. Uh, but the idea was to give our students an opportunity to participate in really a professional level, top top level tiered uh, academic conference where we bring people in nationally as well as regionally. Uh, it was a, a great success this year. We partnered with the Portsmouth Health Department with a community action organization uh, of Sida County as well as the Friends of Portsmouth. We had grant funding from the Scioto Foundation, from the Shawnee State University Development Foundation. Mm -hmm. So it was really a community-wide effort, ultimately, and it, it brought uh, the Lieutenant Governor, uh, John Husted down, uh, who gave the opening remarks to kick it all off. And we had a keynote um, uh, talk by Elizabeth Catt, uh, who wrote the book, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, like you're saying, looking at the curriculum... Uh, I'm seeing titles like Economic Development and Recovery in Appalachia, Ohio, Appalachian Myth-Busting, uh, mm -hmm. and then Elizabeth's book, like you said, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. You had Brian Baldridge here. That's right, the 90th uh, District uh, State Rep uh, for Ohio in the Ohio Legislature. Brian Baldridge was part of the uh, public discussion panel on economic development and recovery in Appalachia, Ohio. Awesome. And then obviously Eric Braun was uh, involved as well. People like uh, Tim Wolf and then Community Recovery Center leaders as well. Yeah, I would, I would give a shout out uh, to Jeremy Burnside, who moderated the session as well. He did a great job. Um, and, and Tim Wolf, uh, you could say, spoke on behalf of uh, the Friends of Portsmouth, but also uh, local business leaders, uh, an entrepreneur who's really making a difference in the community. Awesome. I mean, there's a lot going on here, Andrew, but tell us a little bit about what you feel was accomplished in these three days. I think most importantly, um, we got people on campus that aren't necessarily on campus. So we brought community leaders, civic leaders, uh, uh, elected officials. We were able to have conversations about important topics like economic development, but also the opioid uh, addiction crisis. Um, but we, we also were able to provide a, an opportunity for our students to engage in all this as well. Um, so we had over, uh, over 80 students that registered for the, for the conference and attended various sessions. We had like 30 sessions mm. going on over three days. Um, and uh, amazingly, it all went off without a hitch. Awesome. Yeah, uh, the title for the second annual here right. uh, is something that resonated with Nick and I. I mean, this is a conversation uh, we have a lot for Glockner Chevrolet. I feel like our business is, is really changing in automotive, and you can see uh, the change across every industry. Uh, the digital age just provides access to things that we didn't have before. Correct. Um, you know, a myth that really seems to circulate heavily in Appalachia is that there isn't any opportunity here. But in the digital age, the entry to you know, opportunity is lower than ever, you know, Google, social media. I mean, tell me about that, what you see in this area. Right. Um, the digital technologies that have transformed uh, so much of our lives, um, you know, uh, particularly mobile technology, the combination ultimately of mobile technology and access to the Internet. Um, you know, I, I, tell, I tell my students that the, the future of the past is digital and mobile and public in the sense that 
what what we're doing as professional historians is is uh, writing for and creating content um, for the general public, not just for other academics. And one of the things about the technology is, I think you're getting at this, Nick, is the entry sort of cost of getting into uh, creating content using digital tools. The technology, uh, the software applications, a lot of this has become very affordable. Uh, a lot of it is open access um, so that uh, you know you, you you don't have to invest a lot of money in a in a studio for example you guys are taking your show on the road mm. right your your podcast you're here in my office we didn't have to you know go to no. some studio that you Correct. had set up you know spending thousands of dollars to create the studio environment we're able to do this because of, of the uh, digital technology that we have today and that also means that our students who don't have a lot of money uh, and our under, underfunded you know, college here that that uh, you know we're doing things sort of on a shoelace and a dime, um, but our students are able to participate in the digital revolution and, and all this because of the the low entry point and and the fact that now you know most most people uh, most of our students showing up do have a smartphone. Um, they may not have high speed internet access at home. That's an issue that we're dealing with here in Appalachia, but. But, um, but they do have access to tools either personally or on campus through our, our digital history lab, for example. So, you know, we're able to um, uh, create really high quality content, um, get students involved in using the tools that, are, that people are using outside the academy and businesses and nonprofits and so forth. Uh, you know, data. Uh, people say data is the new petroleum, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's very true. And, you know, it, you would have never think of it that way, but it really is, you know, because so many, there's there's so many devices that stream, you know, podcasts, movies, radio, whatever, and data that, data is huge. Right. And, you know, the, the digital revolution as far as um, history is concerned is that we're able to tell our local story now. Uh, in, in ways that we never could before. We're also able to access um, our history in ways that we weren't able to before because of uh, digital tools, um, digitization of, of historical records, newspapers, all that ultimately as, as we get more and more access to that data, um, we're able to sort of retell and recover our history. So one of the you know the theme of recovering Appalachia that we have for the symposium was meant in many different ways. One was economic recovery, another is you know, recovery from the opioid epidemic. But uh, when you think of digital tools and digital history, uh, we're also talking about the recovery of our history, you know, history that's been obscured uh, partly as a result of just time. You know, things things disappear into the past and. Um, get forgotten about. Um, but once you can break open that historical record and access it, um, you know, with these digital tools, we're able to actually um, find out new things about our past and discover um, really just how uh, complex and diverse our city's history is, for example. Um, so, you know, what, I, what I'm trying to do with my work is to, is to recover uh, lost stories out of Portsmouth's past, um, uh, and and provide my students with the experience and tools ultimately, so that they can continue down this path. Because, you know, the technology is evolving so quickly. Um, you know, where this is all headed, uh, I think is everybody's guess. But for me, it's it's uh, uh, augmented reality. Um, uh, is the direction that like public history is going so that sure. you have your mobile device, you, you, you do a walking tour, for example, you're able to access uh, video, audio, um, you know, maybe even ultimately we'll have some sort of, you know, uh, sc- you just hold your screen up and there's a slider and you decide what year you want to look at, you know. Um, who knows where this is all going? Sure. But, uh, I mean, you've already kind of manifested a lot of these uh, thoughts that you're describing. I mean, because we have so much access with the the age that we're in to public information and, and you're making information more readily available, um, the, the two biggest manifestations of that for you would be the, the SSU Digital History Lab, right? Right. 
And then uh, you've also uh, developed a, an app for walking tours of the of the flood wall specifically, or Portsmouth as well. What's yeah? So um, I run my projects through the digital history lab at Shawnee. Mm -hmm. So the the lab is located in the Clark Memorial Library. Um, so you can say that it's a partnership between the social sciences department and the uh, library here on campus at Shawnee State. Um, but through the lab, I've been able to develop uh, what's called Cyta Historical. Um, it's a mobile app, an educational mobile app, uh, as well as websites. So everything that's uh, in the app is also on the website, so you don't have to have a, a smartphone uh, to access the information. It's all free, um, available uh, you know, on, on, uh, on Apple the Apple App Store as well as the Android uh, Play Store, so you can get it for your Android phone or, or your iPhone. Um, the website is scyotahistorical.org. Uh, again, that's scyotahistorical.org. Um, and there you can access, uh, I think we were up to about 100 stories right now. Um, so basically, you could say like 100 different virtual historical markers. Um, we've got uh, about 10 different tours and the tours are basically where you link the individual stories together um, one of uh, the tours probably the most popular one uh, if you look at our analytics um, is the Portsmouth murals tour and the idea there is that after you've uh, walked the murals and or, or, or driven the, the length of the murals you can then um, use the app to go deeper so if there's a story that's depicted on the flood wall, you can then, if you wanted to, go on a driving tour uh, where you tour different sites that are depicted on the flood wall. And so that would, that tour could take you all the way out to the Shawnee State Forest, uh, to Roosevelt Lake, which is depicted, uh, and Camp Oyo, which is depicted on the flood wall mural. It takes you uh, to Greenlawn Cemetery, um, uh, where uh, you can see the story of uh, the woman that died in the 37th flood, uh, where her tombstone is up, up in Greenlawn. Um, so yeah, that's just one of the cons one of the tours. Um, the other ones are more topical focused. Uh, so uh, you've got a couple different tours focused in the site. I'm, I'm sorry, in the Shawnee State Forest that tells the history of the state park um, and the state forest, particularly the history of the Civilian Conservation Corps, which built the park and uh, built the roads and everything that opened up the Shawnee State Forest to tourism. Um, let's see, we're, we're working on a couple new tours. We're doing one right now that uh, is on the Bony Fiddle District, looking at the history of, of uh, the oldest part of Portsmouth. Um, and we're also working on a, a driving tour of the North End neighborhood, which is uh, the historically African-American neighborhood in Portsmouth. And that tour is going to look at the history of the civil rights struggle from the Underground Railroad and abolitionism uh, all the way up through the end of segregation uh, in the 1960s. That's fantastic. Uh, let's kind of unravel that or unpack that a little bit. I, I really, uh, I, I took one of your tours, it was a physical tour to, to benefit um, the Digital History Lab, mm -hmm. I think back a month or so ago. Yes. Uh, Fantastic tour. Uh, I think uh, we had stopped at a particular office building um, that I had. It was it was right there off Market Street. I think it's the retirement. Is it Riverview now? Uh, the Washington. Uh, I think I think you're talking about the Washington House, the Washington Hotel. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, I I guess what I didn't. I mean, I had no idea uh, that. James Ashley had an office there, you know, and you were kind of right, unpa unpacking right, right. a little bit for, for our listeners who, who can't quite recall uh, what he did in his time here in Portsmouth. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Um, James Ashley is probably the um, most important and, and least known abolitionist in American history. Um, uh, you know, to cut to the chase, the reason why he is so significant is because James Ashley introduced and authored the 13th Amendment, which ultimately abolished slavery in all the United States. So Ashley is considered the author of the 13th Amendment. Um, 
uh, yet, you know, when when you generally hear the story of the abolition of slavery, you know, you hear about Lincoln, the Emancipation Proclamation, um, and uh, and ultimately the Thirteenth Amendment with Lincoln's important support of that. But uh, Ashley was really critical uh, uh, to that. He was out front. Uh, he was uh, really leading the charge. He was the first, to, like I said, introduce the resolution that that uh, became the 13th amendment now if you go back in time uh back to uh his time here in portsmouth um he moved here as a young boy probably like four years old or so with his with his father and mother um so he was born up around pittsburgh but but he grew up here in portsmouth from the time he was a little boy um up until his uh 20s if not into his early 30s um and uh, in the 1840s is when he first got involved in the Underground Railroad. Um, uh, he later in his life would relate the stories about his assistance on the Underground Railroad. Um, uh, but uh, his office that you're talking about that was on Market Street um, is located uh, where the Washington Hotel uh, is. So the building was torn down in order to build the Washington Hotel. Um, and that building was was the uh, home of the Democratic Inquirer newspaper. And oh, wow. James, so James Ashley was the, one of the two founding editors of the Democratic Inquirer newspaper. Um, he edited just a few issues um, before he passed it, passed the duties on to others. But he certainly got it started, and the newspaper was being published right there on Market Street to step out and, I mean, produce something like that, like the 13th Amendment, uh, is just absolutely incredible. I mean, what do you think our, our listeners can take away from someone like him? Well, I, I think it's important you put James Ashley in a larger story, which is, if you look at Portsmouth, we have actually a long history of leaders in civil rights. Mm. Um, you know, I think a lot of our the listeners are probably familiar with Branch Rickey. Yes. You know, uh, more recent uh, American history. But Branch Rickey, of course, signed Jackie Robinson, uh, helping break the color line uh, in Major League Baseball. Um, and so, you know, if you if you if you go back through our history, I think what you'll find is that there have been leaders here um, who uh, understood uh, the importance of equality and that fought for it. Um, and stood up for it, uh, you know. F- so, from James Ashley and others in our community, I mean, there was an underground railroad network here of whites and blacks um, working together to help runaway slaves, uh, all the way up, you know, through Branch Rickey uh, and and other stories. I think if you look at ultimately the successful integration of of Dreamland, for example, yeah, mm. um, you know, you've you've you, you do have really some local uh, legends, some real heroes uh, that have come out of Portsmouth, uh, particularly in, in regards to civil rights and, and equality. So recently we had a little bit of a rebranding of the of the city, right? A, a entire uh, group of community leaders uh, working to kind of reframe Portsmouth and figure out what makes us a destination city, you know, why other people would want to come here and uh, experience Portsmouth and, and be a part of the culture and give us something to, to be proud of, right? We have so much history to be proud of, um, but uh, with the recent development and ec- economic decline and those things, I've kind of, kind of lost our true north a little bit. Um, so a lot of the work that you're doing here at Shawnee and uh, what we're proud to be a part of is at Glockner is uh, rebuilding that, right? Refocusing. And so the, the recent Dream, Build, Live uh, campaign was the direction we took to rebrand and kind of slogan the, mm-hmm. the city. You were a large part of that um, with, the, with the banners that you had, had created uh, to kind of line Chillicothe Street. Uh, a lot of them have uh, historical figures on it like James Ashley and a little, you know, blurbs about uh, what they've accomplished and something that we can tell us a little bit um, about your perspective on that campaign and and what you're continuing to accomplish with it. Yeah, sure. Um, the uh, Dream Build Live Here campaign. Um, my uh, my role in all this was I was contacted uh, by Jeremy Burnside, um, 
who was heading up the the committee that was working on the creation of these banners. So the idea was that you would take take the new slogan um, and uh, create these banners that could be placed on the lamppost um, down Chillicothe Street as well. Second is the plan, um, and. I'm not sure if it was Jeremy or who had the idea, but that the idea was, hey, we have this rich history of folks who have done amazing things here. Um, you know, folks that have lived the dream in Portsmouth, people that have built things here in Portsmouth, um, and people that are, are are doing it today. So the idea is we could harken back uh, to our rich history as as a source of inspiration. Um, and so I was approached uh, by Jeremy and the committee. Um, to, to help them uh, come up with a list of folks that we could uh, develop banners for. Um, and so uh, what I did was I worked with uh, Derek Parker, who was uh, working with me through the AmeriCorps program. Mm -hmm. um, and quickly, um, we, we came up with a, a list of about 60 folks. Um, uh, because of the timeline we were working on to get to get everything uh, developed and printed and hung in time for River Days, uh, we decided to run with our first 30. Um, so um, I worked on the historical content for it, did the photo research um, so that each banner would have a, an image of the person that we were, that we were uh, talking about. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so the challenge for me was, was that, we had a limited number of characters that, and by characters I mean like letters, uh, that space-wise, like Twitter, you know, you're, you're restricted <laughs> to how many characters you can put in a tweet. Well, because of the design of the banners, we, we had to you know, keep it down to, I think it was 126 characters or something like that. Brief, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, um, so to capture uh, everybody's, you know, achievements, uh, uh, like that was was a bit of a challenge, particularly with the deadline. But we did it, um, and um, you're right. I mean, James Ashley uh, has a banner. Um, uh, this this was a way, in, in some ways, for us to highlight some folks that you don't necessarily see highlighted mm. on the flood wall murals. Um, and so we were able to, um, you know, highlight James Ashley, for example, but. There's some familiar characters, of course. Um, you know, I would mention Julia Marlowe, um, uh, Clyde McCoy, Dr. James Forrest Scott. Um, uh, we also did one for Magdalena Glockner uh, and for Bernard Glockner. Uh, so, um, you know, I could go on, but uh, I don't know if you have any. Man, isn't that isn't that an encouraging thing to hear? Though, is I mean, we have this huge like two thousand feet of hand-painted flood walls right mm -hmm. and that there's still more people that just can't make it on the wall i mean yeah yeah there's still many many stories to be told and and um i think there's additional panels that could be sure developed that that highlight some of this history that that's really just now coming into focus mm -hmm. uh this live segment of the slogan nick i mean i know you uh, Andrew, you're not originally from here. You're, you're from Georgia, right? And then came here in the in the two thousand early two thousands, right? I first came here in two thousand one. And Nick, yourself, you you had left uh, a while. Uh, was it for education in Columbus? No, it wasn't for education. It was for work. Okay, yeah. So um, coming back to Portsmouth, I, I, why do you think someone would come to Portsmouth now? Like, what what's the draw? I mean, what's the draw to come back to Portsmouth, to come back home? Absolutely, yeah. You know, there's so much opportunity here, you know, that people don't see. And, you know, there's, you know, when I left, I was younger. I didn't see the big picture. Mm -hmm. Now, as I've come back, I see the big picture. And, you know, there's so much growth potential, you know, here, you know, economically. I mean, even here at the university. Um yeah, because I'm a graduate of Shawnee State University, and I think there was, you know, my graduating class, there was, shoot, I don't even remember, but I think enrolled, there was a shade under 3,000 students, and I, I couldn't tell you how many students are here, how many students are here now? Uh, I would say about 3,500. Okay. Um, yeah, we're actually going back up again. Okay, which good. Is good. Yeah. Yeah, which is good. There's a lot of good programs here. You know, because back when I was here in school, the plastics engineering program was still, you know, mm -hmm. was the top in, 
of all universities in the nation. I'm sure it still is. And now, you know, Connor and I, we were talking about the, the uh, shoot, the video game. Gaming and des- yeah. design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that, that's really taken off. And this is in my backyard. This is, this is exciting to me. Sure. And, yeah. And to learn about the history of, you know, things that I didn't know is very exciting to me that there was things going on before and it makes you feel feel rich inside. Yeah. Andrew and I were talking about this uh, earlier last week where there's a lot of things about Portsmouth that has kept us really relevant nationally. You know, and that's exciting, especially with the game design program now. I mean, they have the Shawnee Gaming Conference coming up. Uh, this is this week. Actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Don't miss it. <laughs> We've got some great keynote speakers coming. Uh, Nick, Nick and I are, are one of the premier sponsors for that, so we're, we're excited uh, for Glockner Chevrolet to be there. Um, but as far as things that, that make us relevant nationally, I mean, one of the top... I mean, it was just last weekend that you were uh, talking with CBS Sports, correct? Right. Um, this uh, past Sunday, the um, CBS Sports broadcast the Bears versus the Lions game. Um, and it's the 100th anniversary of, of the origins founding of the NFL. And so they're, they're, they're doing these historical pieces uh, where they go back and look at the first time teams played each other. And so it turns out that the first time that the so-called Lions played the Bears, it was actually the Portsmouth Spartans who played the Bears because the, the Spartans went on to become the, the Lions. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first match between these two teams was actually here in Portsmouth uh, back in October of 1930. And the Portsmouth uh, Spartans defeated the Bears. Uh, uh, the Bears were, uh, the big star for the Bears was Red Grange. Uh, and, uh, and so the headline was that, uh, was that the, uh, the Spartans had stopped uh, Red Grange and thus defeated <laughs> the Bears. Um, yeah, so uh, I was able to coordinate with um, CBS Sports uh, up in actually New York City, uh, and I worked with a number of folks locally so that we got um, some drone footage and some documentary photography of the stadium. Uh, and through the Digital History Lab, uh, I was able to go and pull the uh, original hard copies of the newspaper coverage of the games. So. We sent them photographs of the original newspapers that covered covered the Bears uh, Spartans original match back wow. in 1930. So I'm still waiting to hear or actually see the full segment. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't have access to it when it ran on Sunday. <laughs> so, uh, but I had a friend who saw it and snapped a few uh, pictures of their TV. So I know that it was out there and it went into the uh, Detroit market of course as well as the Chicago market so um, some good press uh, you know about Portsmouth and it's uh, it's a historic role in the early NFL absolutely uh, I always hear um, and you can kind of see remnants of it uh, especially with the brewing company in the way that they they name uh, their craft beer so mm-hmm. like the big one that I'm thinking of now is the peerless Pale Ale. Portsmouth, at, at some point, was referred to as the the Peerless City. Is this right. correct? That's right, the Peerless City. Uh-huh. Um, one of the reasons for that, from my research, is that uh, around the turn of the century, Portsmouth had an incredible growth rate. I mean, it was growing quite dramatically. Sure. Um, and so um, there was a... Uh, there was, I think it was actually an editorial in the, in the Daily Times where... Uh, they described Portsmouth as the peerless city, and and then people wrote into the paper saying, "Hey, that's great. We should be the peerless city," and it sort of took off from there. And and uh, uh, it was known as the peerless city for a really long time. That's incredible. It, even with the growth rate, I mean, I would love for that. I, I feel like if that spirit of um, you know that really anything can happen here and be accomplished here mm-hmm. if, if that isn't completely restored yet I, I feel like at this point with all the content that you all are creating uh we just have to do a better job distributing it right, uh, right. because uh it, it's very clear that there, there's quite the potential and getting back to the the digital age i think yeah. uh nick and i have seen this in the business at, at glockner chevrolet i, I mean 
the tools uh, that we have access to and our in our employees have access to, right? Uh, they're able to connect with the community in a way that that we never have before. You know, I, I remember people started sharing these images, like here I am with my new car that I just got at Glockner's. You guys, when did you guys start doing that? Is oh, that- I mean, it became more. I mean, Tim uh, Glockner had really like implemented a lot of those practices because mm-hmm. he he wanted our mm-hmm. salespeople to kind of. Uh, show what they're doing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It, like the internet does a great job at um, humanizing the salespeople in general or our employees because they're able to share more about what, what they're helping other people accomplish, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. helping other people get mobile or, I mean, not only posts from our employees, but what, what we actually want to see is our customers posting like a positive, um, either a review or uh, on their timeline, and it just happens organically, right? If mm-hmm. if they really, if we really did a great job with our customer service, I mean, they're they're going to be vocal about it. You know, I I was just going to talk about you know the social media aspect. You know, brings in, you know, brings the community together, and when everybody's you know together on one thing, the community grows. Mm-hmm. And when you have a large community, you know, behind everything, I mean it's so easy to get something moving and going forward and going a different direction because, you know, granted, I mean, when I was in high school, I was in high school in the, you know, mid nineties, you know, when the opioid epi- epidemic came about here. Mm-hmm. And it really hurt. It was really sad. It really was. And it it took over for a minute, and then it was all of a sudden like the community t- community took a step back and said, "Hey, we got to do something about this." And you know, then everybody got together and was like, "Okay, this is the direction we're going, and this is what we're going to do." And then social media came about, and then it, it just it spread and spread and spread, and it's grown and grown and grown and grown. And I think I think. You know, in some sense, because of social media locally, we know that story. We know that that mm. what we're doing to to fight back, what we're doing to you know support economic development. We know we know these stories, but oftentimes we've got these outside media uh, you know sources that come in here, take a few photographs, mm-hmm. uh, and then they perpetuate a narrative that actually is wrong outdated uh, and and totally obscures all the good work and the opportunity sure uh, that we have here i mean that's ultimately one of the things that that we were trying to do with 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 our appalachian uh, symposium was to sort of push back on that narrative um and and to you know highlight you know uh the good things that are going on Mm -hmm. sure not to cover up the fact that we're still struggling that we still have issues to deal with but the fact that there is hope there is opportunity here in portsmouth um yet you know the you know the media from from outside um they're working off of earlier media depictions of the city and you know they, they come here with a certain perspective in mind and that's what they look for and that's what they find and they completely miss uh, the stories uh, of recovery, sure. the stories of, of opportunity and hope um, that you can find, particularly you know places like Shawnee State, um, mm. where people are pursuing you know really opportunity uh, and a future um, and learning digital tools and yep. learning about the digital technologies. It's not just our gaming program. I mean, we're actually at the forefront in the social sciences. Um, with digital tools and uh, technology as well, mm. like you can see with the site historical app and all that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's why utilizing these platforms is so important, right? Because if we're not distributing the correct narrative, right, uh, these other larger media outlets will decide what what is uh, what our story is going to be. Um, and so we've kind of taken that approach uh, at Glockner Chevrolet, and, and I love seeing... Uh, that commonality uh, with you all here at Shawnee State that we're, we're utilizing uh, the platforms to, to set a correct narrative and and um, really I guess when we're when we're producing the content uh, it's really going to be our our community our community is able to better get behind uh, what we're doing here you know what I mean and support the efforts uh, so it's just wonderful to see, and it, it all starts with uh, these tools being made available to us, and then us recognizing that uh, 
that there's a, a huge opportunity there. Uh, I'll just say, you know, allowing us to tell our own story is important. Absolutely. You know, um, it's, it's when people come in from the outside and try to tell our story for us. Sure. They get it wrong. Yeah. You know, so um, that is one of the great things about this technology is that it's empowering us to tell our own story. It's also allowing us to, to really show the diversity that we have in our community. Sorry, I did. <laughs> Sorry, Siri. Chimed <laughs> in there. Go ahead. Continue your thought. I'm sorry. Um, well, you kind of threw me there. So. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Uh, I mean, but even even for us, um, I think these social platforms for us are, are proof on uh, whether or not we're, we're doing as good a job in the community as we say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I mean, the best measurements of our effort, especially at Glockner, I and mean, we have a huge brand, uh, and, and we perpetuate a lot what, what we stand for and what we, what we believe in, um, but but a brand really is is the gut feeling your customer gets from you or the or or the uh, the community gets from you right it has nothing to do about what you say you are but instead uh, what they are so it, it gives the people in our community a voice and helps us as community leaders um, steer the ship right right yeah anything else on that day um, yeah one thing you know we've been talking about like you know the digital age the internet age but you keep you kept on saying digital revolution mm. and i love that mm-hmm. i love that because it's like i'm a part of this and yes this is a revolution i'm going to rise up and we're going to go after it and get it done and i love that word i haven't heard re- revolution <laughs> used since you know going back in you know history and talking about you know the industrial revolution right well the technology really is changing uh so much in our lives i mean it, revolutionary in the sense of dramatic change you know is, yeah. what, is what we're experiencing um and the tools that are driving that you know are are accessible um and they're in that sense democratic you know i mean we can all pick it up uh pick up this technology and 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 use it to to push back against those negative uh uh, stories to to uh you know uh shout out our our narrative you know um and and i think that we're starting to see the fruit from these efforts yeah i think so you know um and i i I think the the friends of portsmouth's efforts uh like with winterfest um I think that is a perfect example of of a of a, an event that has great social media, um, but the social media is good because the event's good. Yes, right. And that's one thing about the technology and all this is that um, because it is social, you know, you know what floats and what people like. You know, <laughs> I mean, it it, it does certainly refl- certainly reflect. You know, you have to have good content you know oh, man. Right? what what you're describing is so key like the relationship between what's happening online and offline is there's a much stronger link than people people recognize right i mean like for, so we call it digital appalachian studies um you know but everything's becoming digital you know so at some point it'll just be appalachian studies Absolutely. i mean the, the assumption is, mm-hmm. is that you're doing digital work and using digital tools mm-hmm. but you know what we're trying to do right now is emphasize you know the fact that that we are on the cutting edge of of, of this technology. Uh, we're on the cutting edge of of these of studies uh, on the region. Sure. Um, and uh, you know you don't have to you don't have to leave Portsmouth. You don't have to go to OSU or Ohio State. You can stay here and you can you can get a great education and get the tools and know how that you need. Absolutely. Uh, and. For an uh, organization like Shawnee State, right? I, I mean, you guys have been put in a position where maybe there have been uh, less resources, and and so when that um, when the digital age came about, you recognized the turning point and were able to utilize it and, and get a head start for uh, the university and our our city as a whole. Yeah, I guess I can give you an example. Um, thinking back, uh, I think I started the lab in two thousand and four. Um, and our emphasis at the time um, was collecting oral histories. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I was struck in my sort of, I went, I went to an oral history institute to uh, sort of learn the, the trade, you could say. Um, but one of the things they were talking about there was how um, 
the cassette recorder uh, was actually a, an incredibly transformative technology for oral history. Because prior to the cassette recorder, it was really expensive to have re a recording you know, device. Um, and, and so with the cassette recorder now, like everybody had like virtually everybody had 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 a device where they could record. Sure. So um, what you see, you know, in the 1970s, really the 80s forward, you know, is a proliferation of, of cassette recordings of uh, people interviewing their their parents, mm -hmm. you know, their grandparents. Um, and and so as we moved into like digital technologies, um, my guiding sort of like approach was like, I need to be teaching my students on like the technology that is most readily available and, 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 and is cheap in the sense that, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money on it, but you can, you can do the work to record this history. Um, and, and as the mobile phone, you know, developed, um, we moved away from, you know, standalone digital recorders, which you can still, there's still reason to do that if you're doing high-end recordings. But the reality is now so many people have smartphones, they have the ability to do oral history right there and it's in their pocket. You don't have to uh, uh, buy a bunch of equipment at the Absolutely. university for students to go out and do an assignment. And it's the same for like journalism, right? It, journalists go out there, you know, it was, they used to have a little recorder they would have in their hand. Now that now they've got their, their phone, right? So the equipment is there. It's just now what we do is teach the methodology. Sure. And we don't have to worry too much about the expense of the equipment because mm. everybody's got it. I mean, this is absolutely uh, just fundamental to, to making a difference in your community. I mean, some of, some of these, uh, some of the realizations you're making here. Um, I wanted to talk just for a moment about uh, one of your panels was named App, uh, Appalachian Myth Busting, and it, it really kind of, uh, yeah. it, it struck me, because mm -hmm. I, I do think, uh, in, in, even in Portsmouth, us as, as community members, we, we do a lot of making fun of ourselves, right? Sure. Um, but... I guess what was your what was your focus? What were you what were you accomplishing that panel? I'd love to hear uh, s some truth from that. Yeah, sure. Um, it was a great panel. Uh, thanks to some grant funding, we we're able to bring in uh, Elizabeth Cat, um, mm -hmm. who wrote the book called "What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia," which is sort of like a, a book on Appalachian myth myth busting. Um, we also brought in William Isom. Uh, from Knoxville. He works for PBS Knoxville. Um, and we brought down uh, Lou Martin from uh, Chatham University in Pittsburgh. He does labor history in the region. And then we had Jennifer Polly, uh, professor of English here at Shawnee State, who grew up in uh, New Boston and uh, Portsmouth uh, and was able to, to speak to, you know, one of those myths about the region is that, that we don't uh, appreciate education in the region. Sure. Uh, that there's not uh, uh, educational opportunities in the region. That you have to leave the region in order to get a good education. Dr. Polly uh, is a alum of of Shawnee State, so mm -hmm. she went to Shawnee State, then she went uh, to graduate school at a, at Ohio University, and then ultimately she came back. She's a returner and came back to Portsmouth, came back to Shawnee State, uh -huh. and is now the, the chair of the Department of English. I, here. I took Jennifer one of her uh, civilization of literature classes, and hopefully mm -hmm. she can speak well as me as I can of her. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very dense class. I mean, very informative. Well, one of the um, one of the things that I think having Jennifer on there uh, uh, illustrated, you know, was the important role that Shawnee State has. Uh, not only in Portsmouth, but in the region, and more generally, the role that regional state institutions like uh, Shawnee State have in, in Appalachia. That um, because there are, for example, you have uh, J.D. Vance's uh, Hillbilly Elegy uh, memoir. Um, you also have uh, Chris Arnotti, who uh, came to Portsmouth uh, and reported for the Guardian newspaper. Mm -hmm. uh, both of them. Uh, uh, basically have this message that uh, the way to succeed uh, in the Appalachian region uh, is through education, but that you have to 
go to some Ivy League school in the East in order to, yeah. to do that. Um, and so one of the myths that we were trying to bust was that, that myth that you have to leave the region in order to be successful or to get a quality education. Um, so uh, I thought we busted that one pretty hard. Um, Fantastic. Uh, one of the other ones that we were uh, hitting on um, was this notion that uh, Appalachia is white, you know, that this is, uh, um, you know, that there's not diversity here. Um, and so uh, William Isom, who um, has a project called uh, Black in Appalachia uh, through PBS, um, he, he spoke a lot to this issue. Um, and, you know, Portsmouth has, is a good example of this, Portsmouth has a, a really long history of African-American uh, community here. And, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it goes all the way back, really, to the founding, you could say. Um, yet, the, the history of blacks in Portsmouth, blacks in Appalachia, gets obscured, you know. Sure. Um, the photographs of the region that are, you know, if you Google, you know, Appalachia you know, photograph or whatever, you're going to see, you know, poor white people. You know, um, you're not going to see the diversity, not only of, of race, but also of wealth, you know. So, I mean, there, there is money in Appalachia. There, there's a middle class in Appalachia. There, sure. There's an upper class in Appalachia. Um, so, we were, one of the things we were pushing back on and trying to bust with this, was this, you know, notion that the region is a monolithic sort of place for white people, um, that our, our culture is is just as rich and just as diverse, I would argue, as, as the rest of the South, you know, um, and other parts of the nation. So uh, that was one of the one of the myths we were busting. Um, and then uh, Lou Martin uh, from Chatham University, uh, he was talking about the history of of labor uh, labor unions and and uh, uh, sort of radical activists that union organizers and stuff like this that that oftentimes our, our history of labor organizing in the region also has gotten obscured. And there's this notion that it's outsiders coming in that, that uh, radicalized, you know, the workers here, but, but rather that there actually was a, a you know, um, an internal labor movement that came out of the, out of the circumstances that the region was facing. So I have one last question. All right. You had talked about teaching your students how to use digital, mobile, and public. Mm -hmm. Explain the public. Right. Okay. So um, in, in academics, we talk about sort of academic history versus public history. So academic history would be where you, uh, you know, write a, a, a journal article that appears in a somewhat obscure journal that comes out four times a year. Um, libraries have subscriptions to it. Uh, um, the readership is 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 uh, focused on on scholars. Um, that differs from what we call public history, which is sort of public facing, so that that we're creating content, writing history uh, in other settings. So museums, for example, are is a public history location. Okay. The murals in Portsmouth are a perfect example of public history. I mean, most people. I would say that visit Portsmouth, that grew up here or live here, their understanding of Portsmouth is very much influenced by the public history that's depicted on the floodwall murals. Um, so public history also, um, you know, historical markers, for example. Um, uh, doing historical panels for a historical building or something like that. So anything that's, that's public facing is public history. Um, and, and so Site of Historical, for example, the, um, the app and website that we're developing That's what I was about to bring up. Is, is, is an example of public history. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the primary readership is, are not other academics. Uh, rather, it's the general public, um, it's students um, here at Shawnee State. And we're also starting to integrate it in with our College Credit Plus courses that are um, being taught in local high schools. So, um, for example, uh, out at South Webster, you can take um, the Intro to American History uh, at South Webster, um, but the, uh, instead of a textbook that they 
have to pay you know forty five dollars for, mm-hmm. they get a free uh, access to the site historical app, and they do readings on local history that that's, connect to national history. I mean that that's huge. Yeah. I, I promise you that is huge. What what other education system is using that? I I, I don't think. You know, because I have, you know, I have a 15, 13-year-old and a 5-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, and this would blow my son's brains out. I promise you that. <laughs> Doing something yeah. like that. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. And, you know, if a lot of these education systems don't get a, I mean, don't want to get on this train, because I can see this going this way. This is, that that's huge. And well, what you're I love seeing, that. what you're seeing, like I say, is the future of the past. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's mobile, it's digital, and it's public facing. That's, that's fantastic. That's awesome. I, and, you know, and the students, the students that work with me in my classes, uh, they, they help with the development of the content. So they do research with me. I give them research assignments, and they have to go dig through the newspapers and so forth and find information. Also have them do photo research, um, because ultimately, with this technology, if you don't have a visual component to it, people aren't going to look at it. Correct. You know, so uh, that's why it's almost like this golden age right now, because we have access to um, to images and stuff like that 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 have been just in people's uh, shoe boxes in their closet. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so like if you're if you if you're listeners aren't familiar with um, this Facebook group called um, You Might Be From Portsmouth, Ohio If, mm-hmm. or You mm-hmm. Are From Portsmouth, Ohio yeah. If. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they've I think they're up to like almost thirty. 30,000 people. Oh, sure. It's absurd. All all kinds of people that are out of state now are like looking back and. Right. I mean, there's this notion of a diaspora, uh, an Appalachian diaspora, where over the last 30, 40 years, a lot of people living in the region have have been pulled out of the region uh, and have left. And you can see that to some degree with with, uh, like the population in Portsmouth. There's a lot of people that are are living across the United States that are from Portsmouth, Ohio. Like, Portsmouth is a great place to be from. Sure. Um, But but uh, that that uh, that site, for example, um, people post stuff out of their own private, personal, family collections, um, and I've also been able to use that site to do sort of crowdsourced photo research. You know, so like I've it, you can because yeah. I'm, I'm um, I guess I'm friends with them or whatever on Facebook or yeah. whatever you want to call it. But I'm part of that group, and yeah, yeah, that's perfect example of you know, how you were talking about academic and public history. Right, right. I mean, it's community engagement. It's yeah. com- community-engaged research. And, and uh, uh, just to give you an example of how that crowdsourcing worked, for example, I I had been at Hickey's in New Boston, uh, you know, getting a burger and uh, some fries or gravy. And on the wall, they had a, this picture of, of uh, a bunch of moonshine stills that had been confiscated by the New Boston police chief, like, and it was like a, it was a copy of a photograph. You know, it wasn't like the original. So like it, it was grainy. Um, and so I took a photograph of what was hanging on the wall and I put it up there on, on that Facebook site and said, hey, I'm looking for the original of this. Does anybody ever seen an original? And within, I would say within an hour, I had been contacted by somebody that had the original and did a high resolution scan for it of it and sent it to us. So, I mean... It really, that, that's just mind-blowing, really. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, how quickly uh, that, that the research can, can move forward like sure. that. And also just, <clears throat> just the, uh, the wealth of, of material that's just every day gets posted. That, Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's amazing. One last thing as we uh, kind of wrap up here, Andrew. You all... Um, something or a piece of public history that you've really been dedicating yourself to distributing uh, is this um, is discovering more about the female entrepreneurs in the area right right, right. and uh, <laughs> something you you had humorous humored us on at a speaking panel at the innovation hub uh, mm-hmm. was your was your um, discoveries about Magdalena Glockner tell us a little bit about about yes. how she uh, like what her part I mean the Glockners have this huge family patriarchy, right, that has uh, spanned 170-plus years now, mm-hmm. starting with Bernard. Um, 
And then Magdalena just had a, a role that was that was completely crucial uh, to its continuation. Yeah, um, as part of the development of the uh, the new Bony Fiddle tour that we're working on, um, we uh, we started working on the history of the B. Glockner building, um, and. I guess at that point in time, uh, the Bernie G uh, uh, local legend uh, beer had been uh, brewed up by the the brewing company, the Portsmouth Brewing Company, and and so the story that I that I was looking at, of course, was the story of Bernard uh, Glockner and, and the origins of the business, uh, and we were we were surprised um, uh, as we dug into it. Um, when we found that Magdalena, his wife, played really a quite important role for a number of years in the company. Um, I thought I could just read uh, from the story that is going to be in and is in uh, Cited Historical. Um, I'll, I'll skip through a little bit of this here, but Bernard Glockner uh, moved here uh, to Portsmouth in 1847. Uh, he immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 22. Um, his earliest days in town are obscured by time, but he eventually found employment with J.L. Hibbs & Company, a hardware store located on Front Street. In 1854, Bernard married Magdalena Beck, another native of, of Bingen, uh, Germany, who had immigrated to the U.S. in 1853. The following year, she would give birth to their first son, Frank, and five more children followed. Over the next two decades, Bernard learned the hardware trade, established a reputation as a talented salesman, and ultimately saved enough money to purchase the hardware business of another successful German immigrant, a man named John Rottinghaus. Rottinghaus had himself purchased the business from an, an earlier German immigrant, a man named S.J. Meyer. And from reporting in the Portsmouth Times, it appears that the hardware business purchased by Bernard in 1874 had its ultimate origins in April 1859 when Mayer and C. Brown opened a, a new hardware store on Market Street. That's a quote from the Daily Times, or the Times. Bernard would successfully run the business for two years before an untimely death in 1876. That's what we were surprised by. We, we thought that he would have run the store for a number of years before his passing, but it, it sounds like he purchased the store uh, ran it for two years and then died unexpectedly. His widow, Magdalena, who I've come to call Maggie, uh, Magdalena would then oversee the company's business for nearly 13 years before she was injured in a fall off one of the store's stepladders. Um, and she may not have ever really fully recovered from that accident. She died two years later in 1891. So Magdalena really after looking at the historical record, she emerged, you know, from this haze of, of the past uh, as a pioneering Portsmouth businesswoman. After Bernard's death, she would change the company's name to M. Glockner and Sons, and following her death, again in 1891, uh, their son Alex would ultimately take the helm of the company, and under his leadership, bicycles, tractors, horse-drawn buggies, and eventually automobiles became the family's primary line of business. And of course, it was in 1912 um, <clears throat> that Alex opened the company's uh, second and enlarged location at the corner of Gallia and Gay. Uh, and then three years later, he secured the firm's first automobile franchise from W.C. Durant, uh, Durant of Chevrolet Motors. And uh, the rest is history, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Andrew, I, I'm just going to speak on behalf of us in the community saying we're, we're really thankful for the work you guys are doing yes. here. So. Yes, I, I, it's awesome. It hey, is, well, it's, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you guys. Sure. Uh, where can people connect with you online and uh, anything else? You What, what are you doing? Uh, right. You can, you can go to org. That's the... the the website for the uh, project that looks at the history of Portsmouth and the surrounding area. So we got that going on. Um, let's see. We're also working on a fundraiser, uh, and we're partnering with Third Court, so look for this in January. But uh, we're going to uh, do a fundraiser. We're splitting the, uh, the proceeds with the Spartan Stadium renovation project. Um, 
where we're going to be selling reproductions of the original uh, blueprints of uh, Spartan Municipal Stadium. So the, the Digital History Lab here at Shawnee um, this past summer, uh, working with the engineering department, we, we uncovered the, the original blueprints in their files. Uh, wow. worked with uh, Eli Allen, uh, who's uh, an incredible artist uh, and digital history guy. Um, maybe somebody you might interview at some point. Absolutely. Um, but Eli uh, worked with us on cleaning up the uh, scans, and, uh, and he put together a nice composite print that takes sort of the, some of the more signature details of the stadium design and put them all on one uh, poster design. So we'll be uh, trying to raise some money for the stadium renovation as well as for the uh, projects of the Digital History Lab. So that's what's coming up. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah.